From the Heart.org Radio, this is The Fellow's Corner. Hello and welcome to the Heart.org's Fellow's Corner. My name is Skylar Jones and I'm an interventional cardiology fellow at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. My guests today are Dr. Kenny Rosenfeld of Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School and Dr. Jim Zadar of Duke Cardiology of Raleigh and Duke University Medical Center. Both are interventional cardiologists and are extremely involved in taking care of patients and doing research in the realm of vascular medicine and peripheral artery disease. I hope that we'll have an interesting discussion that details the careers and work of both Dr. Rosenfeld and Dr. Zadar, and along the way they can provide us with insight into the development of an academic career in vascular medicine and interventional cardiology. Gentlemen, welcome to theheart.org. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Skylar. Thanks, Skylar. Well, let's get started. My first question surrounds the path that you've both taken to get to where you are now. You've developed your careers around researching and treating non-coronary vascular disease or peripheral artery disease, as well as coronary disease. I was curious if you could give us your own unique perspective on your career path and what led you to take an interest in patients with PAD. Dr. Zadar, you want to start? Sure, uh, Scaler. For myself, I've been in the Duke system since the late 1980s, and at that time, Richard Stack was very innovative director of the cath lab and sort of the angioplasty realm. He's very involved with new technology development with mostly device industry funding, and he felt that the peripheral world was a place that we could try device technology before it would be applicable to the coronary situation because the size of vessels and the complexity in a beating heart. We also had the benefit of having a very insightful chairman of medicine at the time. Joe Greenfield was the chairman who was also a cardiologist, and he had been smart enough to send a guy, Joe Perez, out to train in San Antonio with Julio Palmez. And he spent two years out there, and he came back to Duke, and Joe gave him a peripheral lab a dedicated big 15-inch camera right opposite the emergency room and interventional radiology where we shared a control room with the interventional radiology group. And so in the context of Dr. Perez coming back and having an interest as a cardiologist in peripheral disease, in the course of my fellowship, I got exposed to non-coronary procedures. And there was a very sharp young interventional radiologist named Tony Smith who was very skilled and uh, had spent a lot of time with Andy Craig, and he came into the lab at the same time. And over the course of my first two or three years during fellowship and on the faculty, we shared the same control room with the IR group, and we continued to borrow technology from each other as we learned together. I think this is somewhat unique in that private practice world. It probably never would have evolved like that. When we first got exposure to carotid stents, it was really through a relationship with Richard Stack and Gary Rubin, who were close friends, and we got involved very early with the Schneider-Wall stent trial and realized the technology clearly had to change. But we had some good relationships with the device industry, and one of the big pushes on the Duke side was trying to miniaturize some of the technology in the periphery more toward coronary tools. So... He worked with several companies on developing 014-based wires instead of 035-based wires, and this allowed balloons to get smaller and sheaths and guides to get smaller so that we could do more in a smaller environment. And I really enjoyed that, and I found a lot of satisfaction from helping a patient walk better, 
Uh, in fact, I think they were more grateful than somebody you did a coronary angioplasty. And so that's how it evolved really for me, and we developed a clinic based on these principles and gradually grew the peripheral interventional program to the point that we've routinely been training a few fellows a year out of our larger group of interventional cardiology fellows, and both in carotid and arterial education. And I think it's been good, I think, both for the fellows' education and for my own knowledge and growth. Great. All right, Dr. Rosenfeld, how about you? My pathway was not too dissimilar. As I listened to Jim talk about his pathway and, you know, following really in the footsteps of visionary people who are giants like Richard Stack, in my own case, when I finished my cardiology fellowship at New England Medical Center, I had the privilege of working with one of the true giants of our time, who's unfortunately no longer with us, but a guy named Jeff Isner, who's probably better known for his visionary and phenomenal work with therapeutic angiogenesis and stem cell and gene therapies. But when I finished in 88, I said, well, I think the way to go here is I I want to do intervention. I like working with my hands. But that time, it was really only cardiology and interventional cardiology that was just beginning, really. There were no fellowships in that field. And Jeff was moving to a smaller hospital, academically oriented, but nonetheless quite smaller than New England Medical Center named St. Elizabeth's down the street. And I was lucky enough to be asked by him to be one of his new interventional fellows and to go with him. And it's kind of one of those things where if you identify a mentor who's really a giant and a visionary person, then stick with them because they're going to take you to the right places. Jeff was one of those just unusual guys who had greater vision than anybody I think I've ever met since, really. I mean, a phenomenal person. And when we went, Jeff's vision was much like what Jim described, geez, let's work with these peripheral vascular devices and make them the sort of entree to coronary devices, i.e. get the kinks worked out in the periphery and then move them to the coronaries. It's amazing how things have changed around since then. We actually start now with a lot of devices in the coronaries, and then they move to the periphery once they've got the kinks worked out in the coronaries for a variety of reasons. But we went to St. Elizabeth's together, and I was a co-fellow with a guy named Douglas Sordo, who's another giant in his own right, and we created a peripheral vascular program. It's kind of the model of what I still hold up now as the way to do this, which is a collaborative one with vascular surgery, vascular radiology, and interventional cardiology and vascular medicine. We had meetings once a week where we'd go through all the angiograms that were done, and it was a working meeting with all the different parties, and believe me, there were some contentious times there. When we first started out, we might have had one or two angiograms done during the week. That's it. And we'd sit there and talk for an hour about all the different permutations of how to treat this individual, whether it's blown angioplasty or surgery or, you know, when stents came along, stenting. With that groundwork having been laid, we met every week for years. And by the end of my time at St. Elizabeth's, which was in 2002, after 17 or 18 years, we had multiple pages of patients who had to be reviewed in every one of those working conferences. And there was a very tight relationship with surgery, radiology, and cardiology. And they learned from us. We learned from them. I've taken that one step further and sort of been the underpinning for everything I've done ever since then, which is develop collaborative relationships and learn from each other and, and help each other grow. A very important central tenet to all the things that we do in this space. 
along the way, there's been a lot of research and expansion of our capabilities, you know, starting with intravascular ultrasound. I'll never forget the first time we put an IVUS catheter in a peripheral artery, which is right at the beginning of IVUS. We couldn't believe, after having done a balloon angioplasty, that the inside of that vessel looked like a bomb had just gone off and there were stalactites and stalagmites and things hanging and flopping in the breeze and we just couldn't believe that that was what we were doing when we dilated an artery and of course we've come a long way since then and then development of stents and all the other things that have happened along the way technologically our ability to work together with our peers has put us in a position where we can access this technology and try to further it. So it's been a real privilege, and it's been an exciting time. A lot of changes, and I'm looking forward to even more in the future. All right, Dr. Rosenfeld, thanks so much for that, and thanks to both of you for your insight into your career development over the years. I'd like to switch gears and talk about some of the trials involving PAD patients. To start, we'll specifically talk about trials of renal artery stenting. Obviously, we can't talk about the results and the data from currently enrolling studies, Dr. Zadar, with the Astral investigators reporting in the New England Journal of Medicine a few months ago that there was no evidence for clinical benefit and substantial risk with renal artery stenting, where do you see renal artery interventions fitting into patient care pathways in the future? Are there better design trials that could provide a different answer to this question? Well, that's a tough question, Skylar. I've been involved in renal artery intervention for you know, well over 15 years now, and I do think it has a role. We have been pretty aggressive in the Duke system with making certain what we believe are the right patients with high-grade lesions who are maybe from refractory to standard hypertensive care benefit from renal artery stent. Confusing, I think, for the clinical community, I believe, is some of these trials like Astral, which were more moderate disease, didn't appear to show much benefit compared to aggressive medical therapy. In the ASTRAL trial, it was a randomized trial done outside the United States and published in a very prestigious journal. There was a significant percentage, I believe 17 or 18 percent, in the group that randomized to the stent that actually did not get an intervention. So you wonder if the outcomes would change significantly if they did more of a protocol analysis versus intention to treat. But nonetheless, I think we've reserved our renal artery intervention in our algorithms for patients who present with pulmonary edema, heart failure that's unexplained and they have renal artery stenosis or if they have bilateral disease or if they've had a sudden change in their blood pressure control. In general, the Duke nephrology community has been relatively conservative and I think most of the nephrology community in the United States has been conservative and they've been holding back and they want to see the results of a big trial like CORAL, which we don't have any follow-up data on that, but Trials like Astral, I think, cause some pause to the clinicians about what is the appropriate algorithm for renal artery stenting. I still believe in patients with high-grade lesions that you're going to preserve perfusion. I think it's very frustrating for us as cardiologists to see a high-grade coronary lesion on somebody that we do a high-grade renal lesion that we do a coronary intervention on and come back several years later and their creatinine's two points higher and that renal artery's gone and that was something perhaps we could have intervened on and made a difference. So perhaps the astral trial wasn't the right trial design because I don't think the lesions were critical enough, and perhaps in moderate disease, medical therapy is reasonable. I guess the real question to me is what is the appropriate screening in patients with moderate disease, and would these patients in time eventually benefit from some revascularization? 
and a more rigorous trial might show some benefit. So I think it's a tough one, Skylar, but I haven't given up on renal artery stenting. I'll be curious to see if coral makes a difference in long-term outcomes for our patients. But it's definitely a tough subset of what we do on the arterial side relative to some of the other disease entities like iliac intervention, even carotid intervention, or arterial revascularization for critical limb ischemia. Great. Dr. Rosenfeld, do you agree? I do. I think that it's a very difficult issue, that of renal artery disease and how best to manage it, and who's going to benefit from a stent and who's not. There are numerous problems with the astral trial design, and there are also numerous problems with the coral trial. While both of them do provide some information, you have to look at the substrate of patients that are actually enrolled. In astral, if you look at the trial design, the entry criteria state that the patient must be one in whom the clinician doesn't know whether revascularization will help or not, which parenthetically means that a lot of patients were just treated because the clinician in his or her heart of hearts felt that they knew the answer and they went ahead and treated. In other words, the most critical patients, the ones with the progressive decline in renal function, the ones with congestive heart failure, with flash pulmonary edema, and the ones with blood pressures that were uncontrolled by multiple medications, the, the ones that Jim identified, most of them were probably by and large taken out of the trial. And if you look at the number of patients enrolled per site over the course of this trial, it's something like one or two per year. Now, you think to yourself, well, geez, you see more than that in a year's time at every institution. So what happened to all the rest of the patients who were not enrolled? Well, they weren't put in the trial because they were treated outside the trial by people who thought they knew the answer. The same thing is happening with coral. I can tell you that while the people who run that trial, and by the way, I was involved at the outset of that trial as one of the leaders. I was the chairman of the site selection committee. And it pains me to say this, that I think we diluted the way the trial was run and in such a way that we couldn't actually get enrollment to where we wanted it to be because most of the patients are being treated outside of the confines of the trial. And the ones that are being enrolled, it's just like the astral trial and just like the drastic trial before that, are patients who probably won't make much difference. You know, if you take a bunch of 50 or 60% carotid artery stenoses or patients with carotid artery stenosis, 50 or 60%, you treat those patients and you compare the outcomes, there's probably not going to be much difference in their outcome. But if you limit it to the 90% patients and half of them symptomatic, then you're going to show that endarterectomy or stenting or any type of intervention will actually reduce adverse outcomes. So it's critically important who gets enrolled in a trial and all the trial can answer is the question as to what happens with that type of patient. It can't answer any questions about the other types of patients who were not enrolled. Great. All right, wonderful. Thanks for that discussion. Spend a couple of minutes talking about carotid stenting. Dr. Rosenfeld, you've written the current consensus guidelines for carotid stenting. Can you discuss the evolution of carotid stenting and tell us why the evidence may be lacking to proclaim carotid artery stenting as equivalent to carotid endarterectomy. Well, I wouldn't go so far as that. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say that we need to prove the point. It's the same kind of thing that I just described with renal artery intervention. It all depends upon who's being enrolled in the trial, who's doing the trial. That's another factor that I didn't mention, which is that who are the operators and how experienced are they 
when you compare the different therapies, are you looking at apples versus apples in terms of the patients and the people doing the procedures, or are you looking at apples versus oranges? And those are critical questions. I still am excited about carotid stenting. I did my first one after visiting Gary Rubin in 1995, another giant in this field. I went down to Birmingham and watched him and Sri Ayer do a case with Jay Yadav, and then came back up, and I got a call within a day after arriving from a surgeon who had a patient that had restenosis after endarterectomy and wanted him treated with a stent. And I think that ever since that time, the evolution has been one that has been checkered by, unfortunately, political and economic and ego concerns and the fact that, you know, it's not been a purely scientific milieu in which to look at this therapy, which unfortunately has tainted some of the results of the trials and has tainted the way that people look at it. I'm looking forward to the CREST trial. The primary results are being reported in about a month at the stroke meetings in San Antonio. I think that will be important. I think we have to, again, look at it closely as to what we're evaluating. This is a trial that combined asymptomatic and symptomatic patients together. So it's powered based on the total global combined group of symptomatic and asymptomatics. And also, you have to remember this trial took a long time to carry out, and it occurred over the course of the time that the technology was evolving, the experience with the procedure was evolving. There were many people who became stenters, and I was on those interventional management calls. I can tell you that many people who became stenters in the trial who had a lot less experience than those who were doing endarterectomy. So it's a little bit problematic at the end of the day. I don't know what the results are going to show. Just one other comment, and that is I'm privileged to be the national co-PI of the ACT-1 trial with my colleague, vascular surgeon John Matsumura from Wisconsin, chief of vascular surgery there. And that trial is just looking purely at the asymptomatic conventional risk patients and is powered to look at the difference between endarterectomy and stenting in that group only. A very clean trial, which we're excited. We're almost at 1,000 patients out of 1,700. And I think that trial will answer more questions than any trial to date because of the fact that the patients are very carefully screened. They are identified as being good for both therapies, and the operators are all, again, highly screened and vetted with a careful selection process so that we know that at least as close as we can get, the stenters have almost as much experience as the people who are doing endarterectomy. So those are the kinds of trials that we need to do. The ones that are underpowered or look at apples versus oranges, a lot of the literature is checkered with, you know, comparing stenting versus endarterectomy based on Medicare claims data, which is just purely non-scientific. That needs to be really looked at with a grain of salt. And hopefully, at the end of the day, if it turns out based on the ACT-1 trial that endarterectomy is better than stenting, I won't be stenting anymore. But that remains to be seen. Great. All right, Dr. Zidar, anything to add? No, Kenny, just that Skylar and I enrolled a patient in Act 1 today, and we put a carotid stent in a lady, and I, I think the Act 1 trial is a really pivotal trial as the majority of endorectives in the United States are standard risk patients who are asymptomatic. So uh, the importance of that trial, I think, to the field is huge, and I'm glad you're leading the effort. We at Duke are glad to contribute. So one other comment, I mean, in terms of patients who are high risk for surgery, of course, the only trial that really compared these two head-to-head, apples versus apples, was the SAFIRE trial. 
which was the pivotal trial that gained uh, approval for carotid stenting. There has not been any other direct head-to-head comparison between carotid stenting and endodirectomy in patients who are deemed to be high risk for surgery based on either anatomical or comorbid conditions. I would say that, you know, all the comments back and forth and the arguments back and forth about this, you know, they really don't hold water unless you compare them directly head-to-head, as was done in that trial. I would also point out that nobody's ever really done a direct comparison between either endarterectomy or stenting versus medical therapy for that high-risk group of patients. That needs to be done. There's never been a randomized controlled trial looking at surgery versus medical therapy for high-risk patients. So we have a lot more to learn than we already know. Well, great. Well, we didn't really have time to cover treatment of lower extremity disease. The CLEVER trial is a big trial. And then to talk about new procedures and techniques and possibly upcoming clinical trials, I really want to thank you, gentlemen, for your time and insight. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Fellows Corner on the Heart.org radio.